You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 14 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 3rd of June. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asha King. Hey, guys. How have you guys been? We're a little, we're a little late uh, this week. We're recording uh, about a week out from what we normally would, because we've all been traveling in different parts of the world, uh, and this was the first time we could get in a room and sit down and do the record. Nice to be back. Where have you been, Ash? I've been in Florida for the last two weeks. Very and, nice. Uh, back home? Yeah, back home. And uh, yeah, I was looking forward to getting some waves at some of the spots I grew up surfing, and there just wasn't a ripple in the Atlantic Ocean the entire time I was there. It's not exactly prime swell season. No, May's actually typically pretty good. May is sort of the shoulder month in between spring and summer, and we usually get one or two really good swells, and I was kind of banking on that, but we got nothing. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate, because me and Rue went down to Peru, and it was awesome. No, <laughs> Rub it in, guys. Rub it in. So since we last recorded, well, our last record was at, uh, in Colorado's. It was. Which was really fun. And actually, right after we finished recording the last one, the three of us went and surfed the reef. At Papoya, uh, Papoya, Papoya where they're epic. having the World Games right now, today, actually. They are, yeah. But afterwards, we went down to Chicama in Peru, which is famously the world's longest left, uh, if you haven't heard of it. And we went down. It's not a high-performance wave, but it's a really long, fun, um, fairly mellow wave. And uh, we thought it would be a really good place to run some weeks of coaching with Surf Simply. So we went down there to check it out. Uh, and actually, we're going to be renting out the resort down there for, uh, next May for a week. And there was that wave that I took off on where I had the GoPro camera and I took a couple of selfies and then one of me and Harry and then one of Harry. And I posted those pictures up three days ago on Facebook. And I just mm-hmm. said, you know, Harry and I down at Chikama in Peru, we're going to be running some courses here. You know that Ollie is organizing the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, we had 14 spaces. All 14 spaces got filled up within 48 hours. That's insane. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's crazy. Who would have thought, uh, yeah, that's going to be one of the most productive selfies ever on the ever. internet. Yeah, I had a lot of fun out there. I, I took my little finless board out and it went so good out there. Oh, that's pretty much what it was made for, wasn't it? Uh, it was really good fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a trip that I think I would really recommend to, to anyone that really wants to spend a lot of time on their feet. If, you know, if you're someone that's, that's surfing and you just feel like you haven't spent enough time standing on your feet going down the line, Peru is a fantastic place to go. Every now and again, there's just a little sort of soft top of the wave almond shaped barrel that gets thrown up. And, and every now and again, there's a bit of a lip to hit. But on the whole, it's a wave where you're just doing horizontal maneuvers. You're going to be doing, you know, 15 cutbacks on a wave. There's that bit of footage on the internet of that guy doing 34 cutbacks on one wave. Yeah, the world record for the most cutbacks <laughs> yeah. on so one wave. If, if you want to go there and you just want to think about angling your takeoff, going down the line, performing cutbacks, doing floaters as well a little bit, that's... Uh, like probably one of the best places you can go and because it's not a high performance wave there's not a lot of really high level surfers there so it's a really nice mellow crowd in the water and and the local guys are all really nice the place that we stayed at was called the Jakarta Surf Resort and uh, yeah that's actually where we're going to be running the coaching weeks but any of you guys listeners that want a little surf trip I would definitely think about going and checking that place out we now have the full podcast website up and running at surfsimply.com slash podcast Uh, we'll have all the show notes for this episode up so if you want to open that up now you can uh, listen in in an interactive manner and anytime that we're mentioning any any videos or any photos we'll have links posted through to that the other thing that we mentioned briefly last week we're going to change the format around a little bit all the best feedback that we've had from you guys listening has been when we've gone into a little bit more technical detail on a subject so we're going to go down that route a little bit more but we are still going to just keep an eye on the news anything caught your eyes over the last week or so uh yeah have you guys seen the the video on fcs's new fcs2 longboard fin system yeah they announced that uh, yesterday, actually, that was the the press release came out. Pretty current. So, how does it work exactly? Yeah. So, I guess it fits into the traditional longboard box, the one that's been on kind of mid lengths and longboards for you know as long as they've had removable fins. But it utilizes the FCS system, so it clicks in and you can move the fin around at any time. It's kind of so the is ease it, of is the, the FCS two or the FCS one system. FCS2 system. So you don't need a key or anything like that? No, it just pops straight in and out. They've basically taken the bit that, that's in the box of the FCS2 shortboard fins 
and they've put it into the base of the FCS longboard fins so that you can click the fin in and out. I'm kind of wondering what it clicks into, though. I guess there's kind of a groove at Well, the it's, the, it's the channel, you know, where the, the pin on the, the fin and the plate, that groove that runs down the side of the box, it okay. just, it's designed to just click into that. Yeah, and ideally what seems so cool about that is you can move the fin around with just so much more ease than... While you're if out in you're the water, using yeah. A screw or in a screwdriver. Yeah, I think being able to move it around when you're out in the water is cool. Being yeah. able to surf away, flip your board over, pop the fin out, slide it forwards in that fin box, and then catch another wave with it a bit further forward is, is is a really cool thing to be able to do. Yeah, and that makes such a massive difference when you're longboarding, uh, where the fin is in the back. I guess one of the big bits of news this uh, since we've last been talking is the Santa Barbara oil spill, which was actually a couple of weeks ago now, but they're starting to get their head around the cleanup operation. The initial spill was thought to be quite small, but they're now saying that there's around uh, 100,000 gallons of oil were leaked. Actually, most of it on land. It was an on-land spill, but a lot of it went into a storm drain that then flowed out into the sea. Where did the oil spill occur? Is it going to affect Rincon or some of the other waves in that area? Well, it's it's affected about nine miles of the coastline, and, okay. and obviously, like once it's in the water, it's going to going to move around a fair bit. So, there have been a few beach closures since then, and I, I think the cleanup operation is going pretty well. So, I don't think it's massively. I don't think it's kept people out of the water at at, at Rincon and stuff like that. Uh, losing Rincon would be a nightmare. That's that's one of the best waves I've ever surfed. It's mm. amazing. We were having an interesting conversation with Ollie over breakfast this morning, actually, after we went for our little morning birthday surf up at Ostianau. Yeah. It's Asher's birthday today. It is. You got a couple oh, of birthday barrels. That. Yeah. yeah. Happy birthday, Asher. Oh, thank you very much, guys. Anyway, we, so we were chatting about, you know, the oil and the whole thing. And, and, and it, it's something that we've, we've mentioned on the show a few times before. But my understanding of the, the science right now is that in order to wean ourselves off fossil fuel and the whole CO2 output, um, we need to pretty much move over to nuclear power, which can be done safely as long as there's enough money spent on power stations. And we can then be on nuclear power for two, 300 years before that really causes any kind of problems, during which time we can develop solar power. Mm-hmm. That's basically my understanding of, of the best uh, an evidence-based approach to solving the problem, just sort of taking all the politics at it for a second, which kind of leads me on to another thing that's been happening. I'm not sure what to make of this. There was an article that came out recently about a, uh, a fin that's supposed to measure the CO2 levels in the ocean, or rather level the effects of raising CO2 levels in the ocean. Yeah, I think it, I think it technically it's measuring the acidity. Yeah, it's it's measuring the acidity of the water and the temperature and various other things. Basically, it was this guy called Andrew Stern who came up with the idea. He was actually an environmental filmmaker. And uh, then he got together with uh, an engineer called Benjamin Thomas. And uh, the two of them decided to develop a fin, which surfers could have in their boards, which were going to gather data about the ocean so that, you know, scientists could then use the data to measure exactly what's going on. And their, their thinking was, well, surfers are in the ocean more than anyone. So, you know, we should put the sensors on their board. The Inertia ran a typically sensationalist article all about it, saying that it was <laughs> going to save the world. Like most Inertia posts, there's some scathing comments underneath written with what can only be described as withering contempt for the Inertia. <laughs> pointing out that, you know, you can actually put uh, sensors in the ocean without needing to attach them to surfboards. And also, of course, all of the surfers that are going to be using them are just very, very close to the coast. You're not really getting yep. even spread across the ocean. They're going to be uh, concentrated where the waves are good. Uh, so that's going to be a variable which isn't going to be well controlled for in the data that you're going to collect. You know, they're going to be around towns, cities. They're going to be around river mouths, that kind of stuff where pollution yep. might be higher. So on the whole, I think it's not a very scientific idea. But I just thought it was worth commenting on because it has been sort of doing the rounds on social media. And I thought it was an interesting idea and I thought it was interesting just to point out why it's probably not actually going to be provide any sort of useful useful information yeah I one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is the fact that they are now able to miniaturize those sensors to the fact that you can put multiple sensing devices into a surfboard fin and that you know from a, a board design perspective like that is really exciting you know to start to embed accelerometers into the board to start to embed flex meters into the board to start pulling back some data like that like that would be hell of a cool yeah i mean we, we talk about we, we've talked about trace a lot on the show before and we've talked about all the emerging technologies that are trying to gather more data as you're out surfing and and even more interestingly isn't how to gather the data but it's how to use the data you can gather in a way that actually interprets how well you're surfing which is a far more complicated a problem and then of course how to use that for coaching 
But I do think that we're right on the, the threshold of a new generation of surfboards which are going to just give you tons and tons of data back. And I, I think it will be so cool. I think it'll be fantastic and I'm so excited about it. Oh, I can't yeah. wait. Also, I noticed that Surf Snowdonia, which is the UK uh, wave garden technology inland surf artificial wave pool. That's, that that's a real catchy Yeah, yeah uh, that's what title. they should call yeah. it. That should be the <laughs> it official is. name. That's going to be opening in July, which is... They're, yeah, they're, like they're saying they're still away. on track. Which is um, amazing. So uh, how expensive is it going to be to go get some, some artificial waves? Well, I was just looking at the pricing, actually, because they've just released it. You can buy the vouchers now, and then when, the, when it's up and running, you can then convert those vouchers into actual time slots. I think the pricing's pretty reasonable. I mean, if you've, if you've got your own board and you want to surf every day, and you probably want to surf for an hour, let's say, uh, you're looking at £26, which is about 40 bucks. Well, now, I, the one thing I was interested there, they've got two tiers. They've got the surfer saver prices and they've got the surf anytime prices. And there's there's quite a significant difference. And yeah, I couldn't find jump. any definition of what. So the surfer anytime prices is, are the means you can go at peak times because they're, they're, they're sort of anticipating peak times of using the pool. And oh, okay. then the, the saver okay. ones is just off peak. Right. You know, so, I mean, it'll be interesting. Most swimming pools, for example, the busiest time is between six and about eight in the morning because everyone wants to go before work. Yeah. I don't know how this place is located in it's... terms of cities if people are going to be doing <laughs> that kind of thing. No, I don't think so. It's really out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I it's, did... it's two hours from the nearest city. Okay. I mean, I, I noticed that it's about three and a half hours drive from my mum's house in Bristol where yeah. I'm going to be back in October. So uh, I'm definitely going to go up there. And oh, me and Ollie were talking about going up in October as well, for sure. Oh, well, we should sync up and do that. Well, seeing on how it progresses, it'd be, it might be cool to run some, some coaching there in the future. I was thinking that could be really fun, you know, because we do a couple of weeks of coaching in France every autumn, every October. And I think possibly booking out the uh, pool for a week might be a really fun place to do some coaching as well. So yeah. uh, we'll post all about that on the Surf Simply Facebook page and on our blog and everything. Definitely. Didn't one of the guys from Surf Snowdonia get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, Joel Evans, who's the senior coach out there, say that he enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. Sounds like a stand-up guy. So the, um, the final bit of news that we really can't avoid touching on, contest in Brazil. What do you boys think? I don't think at any point in the contest it looked like Philippe wasn't going to win. Yeah. I, I was so impressed. I thought that the contest was fantastic. It went from being a contest that I was not excited about at all to one of the most enjoyable finals days, particularly yeah, really watching was. the final. I mean, Felipe Toledo, I, our friend Sam Wackley wrote on Facebook, you know, he was just, he was writing live while it's going on and, and about with 20 minutes to go in the final, he just said, if this was a boxing match, the referee would have stopped it by now, Yeah, which I think just sums <laughs> yeah. it all up. I mean, Felipe Toledo, he, he was just surfing above the lip and doing these big, powerful turns. And B. Durbridge must have been sitting out there watching him, just going, well, I can't do any of those maneuvers. Yeah, so unless I, I'm going to learn how to do them in the next I've five lost. minutes, I've lost this heat. It was it, it was a very dominant. So for those of you that didn't see, Felipe Toledo beat B. Durbridge in the final and just a very dominant performance. Like The waves weren't traveling halfway around the world to surf them sort of waves but no but he he, he made, made them, them so special yeah he did i'm pretty excited in the future to see some more uh, free surfing film of philippe i know surfing magazine's doing a, a feature film on him and also uh john john florence has featured philippe in his new movie that he's working on now so i'm pretty excited to see some of his surfing outside of a jersey that would be cool i mean there's we collect a lot of the movies that are just coming out on a daily basis on Vimeo mm -hmm. and YouTube and we post them all on our page uh, facebook.com slash surfing and then we also download a lot of them off the internet and then we keep them going around at the resort for people to watch there's not many coming out of Brazil I mean no. there's not many you, you see tons of footage of the guys from California and less so from Australia but you still see footage of those guys um, but it seems like I got a lot of the guys for the States are traveling around with a filmmaker and actually are just shooting everything they yeah. do and putting out web clips and edits. And you just don't see it coming out of Brazil. Well, I think, I, I think to a large extent there just isn't, there's not the money coming from the surf industry. Like, there's the couple of guys that are doing really, really well and they're on tour, but they're still not necessarily getting the money to travel with a filmmaker. And certainly the industry down there isn't pushing for that to happen. So according to the WSL page, Felipe Toledo's winnings this year have been just around the quarter of a million mark, which is uh, great. So I think if he's smart, he would invest some of that in, in a uh, putting, having a filmmaker follow him around and record everything. You touched on the crowds there. That was 
an amazing part of the event as well. I mean, you know, at every event, they always say, oh, and the crowds on the beach here are really bringing the atmosphere. And then the camera pans down and, you know, at Bell's Beach, there's like a few people with hoodies and hot chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and obviously on finals day, it gets a bit more lively. But I've never seen anything like that. There Did must you watch have the... been 100,000 people on the beach oh, and they yeah. were erupting with every turn. It was like being in a football stadium. It must stadium. have been so hard to surf in front of that crowd if you're Philippe with it. At every turn, you're getting that kind of noise and feedback going at you. Yeah. Did, did you guys watch the turnouts video that Hurley put up yeah. with a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff? And it's incredible. It's amazing. The guys being mobbed coming out of the hotel. Really? Yeah. Like the, the hotel security staff are having to escort John John Florence into a car. That's, yeah, pretty, I, that's a pretty different vibe to when he was uh, staying next door to us in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah very different. <laughs> Go over and knock on his door. Uh, but so yeah, Philippe won the men's event and that puts him into second place behind Adriana D'Souza and between the two of them, they're well ahead on the overall rankings. For the men's, Courtney Conalogue won the women's event and she's now in second place behind Carissa Moore who did, is looking very solid. Did you see uh, when Courtney won how she got handed a Brazilian flag and did her rounds up and down the beach on the back of the ski with the Brazilian flag. I thought that was nice. Yeah, and after a while, she just could, like I think she wanted to kind of switch off and yeah. grab the American one, but she just couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> so she just waved it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of that. I think uh, everyone should have to wave another country's flag whenever they win anything. I think that's a very healthy thing, <laughs> thing to happen. So yeah, we've then rolled around into into the Fiji event, and the women's event has actually already started. Oh my um, gosh, and it's been pretty incredible. Yeah, and the the, the women are killing it out. Do you see Sally yeah. Fitzgibbons the other day when she yeah. busted her eardrum? She and then ruptured went back her out. eardrum and then proceeded to win the heat, continued surfing the whole heat. Uh, she she might have just gone up in my estimations. Is she becoming a bit more hardcore? It's well overhead cloud break. She fell, busted her eardrum, like couldn't walk. They got her back onto the boat, and I think it was about 30 minutes, an hour later, she went out for a round four heat. She did it in round three, won the round three heat, went out in round four, and blasted the other two girls out of the water. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And that cloud break is one of those waves that I think looks much easier to surf than it is when you're actually there. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been there. If it, you guys haven't been there either. No, it's, no it's, it's on my list, though. I yeah, it's on my list, so too. Bad. I might have to do that. I'm 40 in a couple of years. I might have to make it the 40th treat. Um, but yeah, no John John for the for the event. No Steph Gilmore. Oh, but we got some pretty good replacements. No Brett Simpson. Well, I, yeah, I, Dane Reynolds and Jay, I, Jay Davis will be astounding out there. I oh, hope. but I think Dane, Dane Reynolds, Reynolds and, is a funny choice. Uh, I don't know. He's he's done pretty unbelievable there before. Has he? And he had his surfing really fits it. He had a section from Cloudbreak in his last free surfing clip he released. Okay. The I, one before this one. I'm looking forward to seeing Dane Reynolds take off at Cloud Break or restaurants and do that. Uh, you know how you know a lot of the guys will grab the rail and put one hand in the face, and a lot of the guys now really don't like to grab the rail and they'll just let go with both hands, you know. And then, but Dane does that thing where he takes off and he sticks both hands both behind, hands him, behind in, him in the face of the wave as he slides yep. down to stall him. He's one of the only guys that really does that, and it's super cool. So oh, it's about as I'd cool like to see that happen a few times. Yeah, it's very cool. The one thing I did think was interesting for the Fiji event this year is that the girls and the boys are running on a different schedule. I don't know whether that's just to do with the lack of accommodation over there with everyone having big entourages now or whether they're trying to give the girls a, a clear shot at, at good conditions. I think it's the latter, or I hope it's the latter, and mm. I think it's a really, really good idea. I think actually splitting up the men's and the women's so that they have different event windows is fantastic because it means that you, you set the whole structure of the competition up you know the webcast the team the, ta- the yeah. judging tower all of the infrastructure and then both the men and the women can have the primo conditions for their yeah uh, and, and for their time slot and obviously one of them is going to inevitably get better conditions yeah um, but at least it's 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 not an inherently sexist system which is the one that already exists well, I think Sally Fitzgibbons was uh, making a call for if, if there were was an overlapping schedule to you call the contest on and then it's a coin toss for whether it's the men's or the women's that go out. Hmm. I'm, I'm into that. I, I'm in, I mean, it's a tough one, right? Because I do want to see the men surfing when the waves are good because they surf better. I mean, and that, you know, that's not being sexist. The men just surf better. They just do. On the other hand, you know, I'm a big believer in equal rights and mm-hmm. I do think it really sucks that the women have to surf in substandard wave and it's not doing women surfing any favours so I think actually a good resolution is just having this kind of back to back waiting period but I don't know if the cost of it's going to be prohibitive for the WSL because it means now you've got to have a th- you've got to have 
all the infrastructure there for three or four weeks instead of yeah. like you know two or all three. the film crew all the judges all the backup staff all yeah. the catering staff like i imagine it makes a big increase to running the two events one on top of the other yeah uh have you guys seen the forecast for the fiji event for the men's no not yet uh, it looks like they're going to start off with a huge swell two days before the waiting period. And Kieran oh. Perot, I read, actually just texted all the men's competitors if they can be there a day before. I would start early. Yeah, the, the oh, windows start Sunday. And Friday, which I think is after the women's comp, is going to be all-time cloud break. Yeah. But they can't get it for Friday, so they're trying to do it on the back end of the swell on Saturday. Oh, that would be oh, good. I hope they yeah. manage it. Yeah, yeah. I, hope, I really hope they pull it off as well. Uh, so as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to try and cover a few more sort of detailed features on the podcast over the coming months. And given the amount of good feedback we got from the, the previous episode, Rue, I think you're going to uh, jump in and, and sort of pick up where you left off last time. Yeah. And also, I mean, regardless of the feedback, it's just really interesting. Well, it is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just something that I, you know, I'm always thinking about is, uh, you know, coaching Well, we all are. And, you know, and there's always new literature coming out about it. So this week, I really want to talk about the 10,000-hour rule or the 10,000-hour myth, you might say. Yep. And also, I want to talk about coaching kids. Um, we don't have kids come and stay at Surf Simply, obviously, but a lot of our guests and a lot of people out there will have young kids that they want to get into surfing. And Absolutely. People aren't necessarily sure about how to approach it. So I assume that you guys have both heard the meme that to become an expert at something, you need to do 10,000 hours. As yeah. you probably know, it was made famous by Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, but it was actually originally a study by, by a scientist called Anders Ericsson. Yeah, they did, um, I think Surfer Magazine actually did a post where they tried to, it was a couple of years ago, and, and they tried to break down how many years that would take, uh, like a normal surfer versus a competing pro surfer. Right, well, that's very interesting. I didn't know about that article, but that is exactly how it has been applied. So you hear this 10,000 hour rule used about all kinds of things, but I think that it's most often used in, to, uh, in terms of sports coaching. I mean, it's everywhere in the sports psychology literature, which is ironic because the original study actually had nothing to do with sports. Uh, Ericsson took 30 violinists at this world famous music academy in Berlin, and he split them into three groups of 10 based on their skill. He then looked at several factors, one of which was how many hours of practice the students in each group reported having done. He then averaged out the hours within each group and found that the top group had done over 10,000 hours of practice, but the other, other two groups had done significantly less. Now, mm -hmm. there's a few major problems with this study. Firstly, the individual students were inconsistent when they were asked on different occasions about how many hours of studies they believed that they'd done. So they, they were just self-reporting how much time they spent yeah, exactly. practicing the violin and, and they weren't always, the answers they gave weren't always the same. Exactly. So it's just self-reported data, which, which is never going to be super, super accurate. Secondly, he averaged out the hours within each group and several members of the top group hadn't even done 10,000 hours. They'd done quite a bit less. Right. A couple of them, and most of them actually had done less, a couple of them had done a lot more. And so the average of the whole group happened to be above 10,000 hours. So there were a couple that were super dedicated and spent 20 hours a day. Loved the violin. Exactly. Thirdly, there are other differences between the groups. Like, for example, the top group had an average of 5.4 hours more sleep than the other two groups. That's what, five and a half hours more over the week? Over a I week, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not a night. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> you couldn't fit in your 10,000 hours of practice. <laughs> then, uh, then why don't we call it the 5.4 hour rule? Well, exactly. It was, it was kind of one that's... of several different factors that was just picked up on almost arbitrarily. Fourthly, we have this thing that's called selection bias, right? So what I mean by that is that everyone in the trial had already made it to an elite world-famous music academy. So it's the worst kind of selection bias because you're selecting a group based on the variable that you're trying to test for. It would be like trying to figure out why people are good at basketball but only testing top NBA players, then looking for some different factor between just those guys, forgetting that all of them are over seven feet tall. Right. Finally, and most importantly, we have the problem that the study is essentially looking for correlations rather than trying to disprove a hypothesis. I'll, I'll just tell you what I mean by that. This is one of the biggest flaws in surf coaching and, in fact, in sports coaching generally. Let me give you an example. 
My mum was telling me about this boyfriend she nearly married before she met my dad. He was an Olympic skier and she told me how where they grew up, all of the keys skied as their main form of transport from pretty much the age they could walk. Someone looking at him and asking, uh, how did you become an Olympic skier, could easily say, well, it was because he was skiing since he was two years old every single day to get everywhere he went. But that's just looking for a correlation and therefore finding one. So a bit like that that website that I, I can't remember what the guy's called, but he went through and found all those weird, spurious correlations that, yeah. that matched up. I think there was a great one. It's like murder rates versus how much rain there was in, in Texas or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the correlation, the graph is perfect. Like the, the two numbers just, just go and he's found loads of it. Like how much cheese gets bought in New York versus how many people get pushed off cliffs in California. Yeah. And it's amazing. If you're looking for correlations, you can always find them. So... What you need to do instead is to try and disprove the hypothesis. So trying to disprove this hypothesis is like saying, I wonder if kids who started skiing all the time from a young age will become Olympic skiers. Let's try and disprove this idea by trying to find examples of when that doesn't happen rather than when it does happen. And now suddenly you notice that all the other kids in the town that were also skiing from a young age, just as much, went on to become accountants, teachers and bankers, not Olympic skiers, which tells us, no, that isn't the significant factor. I mean, it's certainly a factor. It's just not the most significant one. Yeah. So it's it's the whole idea of the scientific process, isn't it? You don't try and prove your theory, you try and disprove the theory. Exactly. In surfing, we see it all the time too. Kelly Slater's 11 times world champion and he has his organic superfood diet. Therefore, that must be a factor in helping him be a world champion. But how many people eat that same diet and are not a world champion at what they do? So noticing correlations can help you come up with ideas that you then want to go and test. But like the old saying goes, correlation doesn't equal causation. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the 10,000 hours. What did Anders Ericsson's study really tell us? It says that if we all have an identical environment and identical genetics, then practice will likely be the differing factor. No shit. But of course, this has never happened and it never would happen. So the practical take home from the study is really that more practice is probably good. That's it. There's really nothing new there. There's nothing magical about the 10,000 hour figure. Mm -hmm. Anders Ericsson actually feels quite strongly about this himself. And he even has an open letter on his website called The Dangers of Delegating Education to Journalists. Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote the book, who popularized the idea, mm-hmm. admitted to David Epstein, who's a sports psychologist, a really interesting guy. He's the guy we were talking about last episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So Malcolm Gladwell admitted to David Epstein in a discussion that they had that you can't apply the 10,000 hour rule to sports, right? But I yeah. would say, as, as I already sort of mentioned, that I think that actually culturally that's where it's had the most impact. Yeah. Gladwell isn't blameless. He does call the 10,000 hours rule uh quote, a magic number to expertise. And and he also calls it, quote, a rule. Yeah. There are sport coaching programs out there now which are trying to fit in exactly 10,000 hours of training between the ages of 8 and 18. Most of them have no idea that they're actually extrapolating statistically dubious violin research. (laughs) The other big problem with Gladwell's book is the definition of practice that he has. The implication is that the practice should be explicit, structured, and technical. So we end up with these young athletes doing structured, technical, hyper-specialized coaching in one sport, trying to reach this 10,000 hours number. And that's actually completely contrary to what the science is actually telling us. It's interesting. So what should the kids be doing? Because I know when I was growing up surfing and competing a lot, I wanted more than anything to just get as as good as I could at surfing. And that's right when kind of surf coaching became popular and a lot of kids were, you know, doing quote-unquote surf practice and going and see coaches all the time and taking it really seriously and trying to get as much practice in as they could but uh yeah how do you how do you apply this to kids in surfing so statistically for the vast majority of the of sports kids who go on to become elite professionals actually do a wide variety of sports when they're under the age of 12 and they don't start specializing until they become a teenager so it'd be like so if i loved surfing i was also skateboarding and and, and swimming Right, well, so the, the types of sports you want to do, I'll actually come back to. That's a really good point. Okay. But kids who hyper-specialize in one sport under the age of 12 tend to only reach an average level, not an elite level. They tend to level off when they reach sort of their teenagers. 12 seems to be this magic cutoff age, after which it's very difficult, for example, to change your native language. Uh, and your chances of becoming a grandmaster at chess drop 50-fold if you haven't taken up chess by the age of 12. 
It seems like in sports, the period before the age of 12 is this critical time to sample a wide variety of sports and find out what fits your body type and engages you mentally and find out what you enjoy. We tend to think of elite athletes as being people like Tiger Woods, uh, who was demonstrating his swing aged two and John John surfing pipe aged eight. But actually, those guys are the exception rather than the rule. The far more common road is someone like Robbie Nash, who didn't even own a basketball until he was 13, or Pat O'Connell, who didn't take up surfing until he was a teenager. Yeah. This doesn't mean your kids should be spending less time playing sport. It just means they should be sampling a wide variety of sports. Young athletes report higher levels of enjoyment, higher levels of skill development, and less injuries if they're not hyper-specializing. I mean, that's what, to a large extent, that's what we see that the occasions when we do do a family week, you know, the, the way that we coach kids is very different to the way that we coach adults. And we, it, we tend to be much less targeted, you know, it's go, let's go down, let's have fun, like, let's keep it interesting, little short exactly. um, activities that aren't even necessarily surfing related, but it's, it's just having fun in and around the water. And that, you know, they get better just by default because they've got so much energy and so much enthusiasm. Right, exactly. And the words that we use in the sports psychology literature are explicit and implicit learning. Right. And explicit learning is when you're telling someone something specific, put your hand here. And implicit learning is more what you describe when you're just giving them the time in the water to sort of play with it. Yeah. So let me talk a bit more about this. The push towards hyper-specialization has meant structured coaching programs for kids under 12 have evolved everywhere too. And again, sports science tells us that actually kids under the age of 12 learn much better through implicit learning mm -hmm. so implicit learning like i was saying means that you're sort of learning like a baby through trial and error and repetition yeah athletes who've learned skills implicitly are far less likely to lose those skills when they're under pressure so if you've learned how to do a serve in tennis implicitly rather than explicitly yeah when you're then on the tennis court in the final you're far less likely to you know to to, to choke and to blow it uh, so all of this has meant that in the States now, if you live in a town of over 5 million people where you've got a big budget and a structured coaching facility, you're statistically very unlikely to make it to the elite level of your chosen sport, right. which I find really shocking. Yeah. Let me give you some data that's going to blow your mind. Towns of 50 to 99,000 in the US are vastly overrepresented in professional sports by like 10 to 30 times. A researcher called John Cote from Queen's University in Canada has been looking at this in 13 different sports and yeah. has also been starting to profile the towns. Yeah. The small towns don't have the big budget or facilities for hyper-specialized and structured coaching in kids under 12. Yeah. It's more like the coach is some old guy with the key to the gym who just provides continuity. And sure, he helps kids with their personal growth and a little bit of direction, but mostly he's just facilitating implicit learning. Yeah. If you're from a big city of more than 5 million people, your chances of becoming an NFL football player are 100 times lower than average across the whole population. Wow. Right, 100 times lower. So if you average it out across everyone in America, if you come from a city of more than 5 million, you're 100 times less likely than average to become an NFL football player. Um, but if you're from a town of under 99,000, you're 10 times more likely than average. Right, and 99,000... That's a small town. That is a pretty small town. Um, it sounds like a lot of people, but statistically, that's that's a, a small town, isn't it? Yeah, and the differences in those numbers is huge. You know, 100 times less likely to 10 times more likely, and that's not even that high. For baseball, you're 20 times more likely to turn pro, and for women's golf, you're 27 times more likely to reach the elite level if you're from a small town rather than a big city. Wow. There's a couple of important things to bear in mind here. Firstly, we're talking about kids under 12, not adults. Mm -hmm. Secondly, hyper-specialization may be more important in sports that have fewer transferable skills. In other words, if you're playing baseball, soccer, football, basketball under the age of 12, you're developing a lot of agility and ball control skills. Surfing, of course, does not have very many transferable skills. Skateboarding and swimming are helpful, but your ability to predict waves is something that you're only going to really get from being in the ocean. Yeah, which is what we were talking about last week in terms of just building up that cognitive database. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's this general misconception among the population that if something is good for you, then more of it is better for you. But this is rarely the case. Uh, most things are about dose or about balance. Something might be good for you in a certain amount, but more of it might be worse for you. I mean, this is certainly true with diet. And again, sports nutrition is probably something we should cover on yeah. the podcast as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really true in diet, which is something that that moronic food babe could probably do with getting her head around. I don't know if you guys have seen that. <laughs> uh, but it's also true 
when it comes to the balance between explicit technical coaching and just facilitated implicit learning yeah in a spectrum which different sports fall on so it's not that you should be doing explicit learning or you should be doing implicit learning it's a spectrum which different sports fall on yeah. and as we know from coaching at surf simply even different skills within one sport for example getting people to put their hand in the right place when they're going from laying to standing requires explicit instruction but teaching people to angle their takeoff down the line requires explicit instruction about what they're trying to achieve and how to do it, but then implicit repetition, trial and error, in order to know exactly how much and when to angle the board yeah. on any different wave. Yeah. We're still in the really early days of sports science, but the research so far seems to be pointing towards needing to strike this balance between implicit learning and explicit technical coaching. If you're younger, implicit learning is definitely better. And if you're older, a balance between the two might be much better. You know, like what we do here at Surf Simply. And, and as you said, you know, we, we, we coach very differently when we've got under 16s. Yeah. If you have a sport with a lot of transferable skills, then specializing later in life it's probably better. If you're doing a sport with fewer transferable skills, then specializing earlier might be important. Mm -hmm. So what's the take-home from all this for, for surfers and for, the, for surfing parents? Mm -hmm. If you want your son or daughter to be the next Kelly Slater or Carissa Moore, try to engage them in a wide variety of sports when they're young. But sports which have as many transferable skills related to surfing as possible. Swimming, skateboarding, bodyboarding, the local lifeguard club, body surfing, and even just messing about in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about technical coaching, at least until they reach their teenage years. What seems to be important is continuity and that they enjoy what they're doing because they'll learn implicitly and more importantly, want to keep doing it. And for me, that's the most important thing. My personal opinion is that too many kids are pushed towards competitive sports. But the best gift you can really give a child is a sport that they will enjoy for their whole lives. Something that will keep them fit and healthy right into old age, regardless of how many trophies they've got on the shelf. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So another feature that we wanted to start doing regularly, we've stolen directly from one of mine and Rue's favourite science podcasts, and we thought we would do a, a superhero of surf each week. Um, surfing's got a really rich history to it, and there's a lot of people that are very well known, like Kelly Slater or Tom Curran or someone like that, People names that are, are, you pick up very quickly when you come into the sport. But there's a whole bunch of other people that have maybe slipped through the cracks a little bit more, and we thought it would be really fun to just... Uh, highlight a few of those those other people. I was thinking that we could start for the first one all the way back, and most people would think of going to Duke Kahanamoku. Duke Kahanamoku. Well, Ash is American, so he says Duke. Duke. Rather than Duke. He does. Duke. That's probably the correct pronunciation as well. So yeah, I thought that I could maybe touch on Duke Kahanamoku, who is widely regarded. You know, again, it's one of those names that you come across very quickly when you get into surfing, as this oh, guy that kind of... First pro took, surfer. First pro surfer, the guy that took surfing everywhere. But... He wasn't. Uh, there was a guy that came before him. There was a guy called George Douglas Freeth Jr., who's a half Irish, half Hawaiian, very white-skinned guy. He was born in uh, 1883 and lived out in Hawaii. He was the son of an Irish captain uh, that lived out there, but he was an excellent, like right from a young age, he was a really, really good swimmer. Uh, he was the captain of the Honolulu swim team and swam competitively all the way through his young life. But at that point, there weren't very many. There weren't very many surfers at all, um, and and those people that were surfing they were almost totally Hawaiian. There were very few white surfers, and of all the surfers, there were very few that were even standing up. Most of the Hawaiian guys were were lying down on their belly and surfing, and he was the first, definitely the first white guy to stand up, and uh, one of the first guys to work out how to angle across the wave rather than just riding in with the white water. Like a lot of the skill set had been lost and he was one of the first guys to work out how to like edge the board and get it going across the wave in front of the whitewater. I love the idea that even when no one was standing up on surfboards, that it, there's some there's some part of your brain that's hardwired to just see people lying down and go, yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> I'm going to stand up. <laughs> I'm going to stand up. Definitely. So the reason that, that I particularly wanted to talk about him is because he basically invented what we do um, and he used to teach. Um, he was a swim coach, but he, was, he taught surfing uh, sort of everywhere he went. So for listeners who don't know, Harry, Asher and I are all full-time professional surf coaches. We are. So he taught, there was a, a guy called Alexander Hume Ford, who's pretty important to the development of Hawaii and Hawaii becoming integrated into the United States and things like that. He was very keen to, to you know, learn how to surf and he tried and he tried and he tried and he kept failing. Um, he 
persuaded George Freeth to take him for a lesson, and his quote was, I learnt in half an hour the secret I had sought for weeks. Sounds like one of our TripAdvisor reviews. It does sound like ah. one of our TripAdvisor reviews. <laughs> um, Alexander Hume Ford then got very overexcited, went back and chatted to his friend, the author Jack London, who he also gave lessons to. And one way or another, later that year, he moved to California. This is 1907. Uh, George Freeth moved to California, and he was actually the first professional surfer, quite probably, because in 1907, he was hired by the guys that owned the Redondo Beach sort of resorts, Venice, uh, Huntington Beach, all of those places in California. He was hired um, under the name the Hawaiian Wonder ah. to go and do demonstration surfing. The Hawaiian Wonder, huh? Yeah, because they, they were trying to draw people out of, of inner city LA and get them out to these new beach towns. Okay. And he would do these display surfing events. So yeah, he was he was probably the first professional surfers as well. When I was a kid, I used to have this fantasy that I could get in a time machine and go back in time. Mm-hmm. You know, back to the sh- before the shortboard revolution, go out yeah. on a shortboard, <laughs> and you know, be the guy who started the shortboard yeah, revolution. Be the guy. But then there was a little part of my brain that was like, probably the way that I was surfing back then, they would be like, "Well, we definitely don't want to surf like that guy. Better stay on these longboards." Actually, <laughs> hampered it for years to come. But that says that that's that's quite a disturbing insight into my psyche. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, while he was in California, the other thing that he then did was. All of these beach towns, they were hiring uh, or they, they were trying to build volunteer lifeguards because you know, people weren't exactly very good swimmers. No. Uh, lots of people get into trouble. And the the level of the lifeguarding proficiency was really, really low. Like the, the guys that were the lifeguards didn't really know about ocean safety, didn't know how to um, deal with waves and, and things like that. They were kind of pool lifeguards, if you like. Um, the and he developed so much like how to use a surfboard as a rescue device how to use a rescue torpedo um, he was the guy that explained that it was good to use a rip to get out because at that time the general thinking in the US was you don't go near a rip because it's associated with undertoes and it's going to drown you mm-hmm. um, and he was the guy that got the lifeguards doing all of that in 1908 so this is the winter basically after he's arrived there's this huge storm as a, a fishing boat gets into trouble off outside the breakers and he paddles out brings a fisherman back in paddles back out brings a fisherman back in paddles out rescues seven of these guys by which time he's been in california winter waters for about two hours he's totally hypothermic finishes up running off the pier jumping off with um, a float to keep the rest of the the fishermen afloat until the rescue the actual rowing boat that's that's going to rescue them can get out to them Um, that is amazing like pretty incredible he also, like I said, a very competitive swimmer, and he got involved with um, coaching swimming with the LA Athletic Club. He brought the Hawaiian team to California for competitions, which is how Duke ended up coming over to California. And he he would have been an Olympian. You know, one of the things that Duke's really famous for was was becoming a multi-time uh, Olympic champion. Uh, George Freeth couldn't compete in the Olympics because he was being paid to be a lifeguard. And at that time, oh, you couldn't, awesome. you couldn't, yeah, you had to be amateur. And so because it, it, like he wasn't getting paid anything very much, like he was really low pay, scraped through. And um, sadly, he eventually died. He, he ended up working as a lifeguard on Ocean Beach in San Diego. During World War I, there was a terrible uh, flu pandemic. Um, which came over from Europe, all the troops returning from uh, World War One. Obviously, San Diego, a big military town, and uh, that pandemic really hit San Diego pretty hard, and he, he died basically penniless. Uh, he was only 35. 35 years old. Yeah. Wow. Um, but yeah, brought surfing back in, brought you know surfing across the wave back in. He developed all the lifeguard uh, lifeguarding stuff. He was a, a swim coach, a surf coach. So yeah, really pretty amazing guy. I'll, I'll put a few links to, to stuff where you can read about him. But he is now, the, the final thing, there is a, a bronze bust on, on the, the pier at Redondo Beach in California, which is the only thing that uh, that's still out there. George Douglas Freeth. Kind of the Duke before the Duke, huh? Yeah. Yeah, like really, really cool guy. Really cool, really interesting guy. Apparently very, very chilled, very, you know, it wasn't big and brash and loud. It was just everywhere he went, he, he ended up, you know, he was captain of the swim team. He was made captain of the lifeguards in, in all the towns that he worked. Mm-hmm. But not because he was going in there trying to do it. Just He just turned he was up. He good. was the most competent. Very cool. Very cool guy. Very cool guy. Over the last... 
few episodes actually we, we've kept encouraging you guys to send us emails and then we keep running out of time <laughs> <laughs> to actually go through them and talk about them. So first of all, Paul Lowe, you sent us an email um, asking about sort of differences between epoxy and polyurethane construction. And that's that's going to be pretty tricky. It's a to, tough one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more research on that and we'll, we'll maybe make that the feature on, on the next episode to just go into surfboard construction a little bit more detail. It's kind of complicated because first of all, there's how the different materials perform, but also a lot of the language which is in use culturally is not actually technically right yeah so you're exactly. gonna to have to do it mm-hmm. in two big bits yeah but anyway yeah let's you do that in All a future right. we'll, episode we'll do that in a future episode i did uh get to jump on your epoxy almeric this morning and i really liked it yeah so but i don't know if that was uh because of the material or what but yeah it worked really well um jonathan bailey uh you asked us about tomo surfboards I don't know. What do you guys think about Tomos? I've never had the chance to ride one. No, I think I, I think we should probably preface this by saying that none of us have uh, have ridden those Tomo boards. But... Okay, well, let's say this then. Looking at them, would you want to get one? Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to get one. I'd want to try one first. I, I don't really... know if I could blindly get one. Should we reach out to Firewire, see if we can get them to send us one? Okay, yeah, lovely, I think yeah. that... The thing I like about those Tomo boards is, having, having listened to Daniel Thompson in a few interviews... Who's Daniel Thompson? He's the shaper. He is Tomo. Okay. Um, so... He is very into the the science side of why a surfboard does what it does. You know the hydrodynamics of it. He's read a lot of the the research papers on hydrodynamics, and that's how he's ended up with the boards looking the way that they look. It's it's not. So a, what, we'll just describe of, for our listeners what do the Tomo boards look like? So yeah, for those of you guys that haven't seen them, the Tomo boards uh, look. I guess a little bit like a wakeboard almost. Kind of blunt on the nose, blunt on the tail. Yeah, sort of the the average surfer would probably be riding like a 5.2 to a 5.4 on a lot of the designs that he's got. But the they're, they're, they're also a lot narrower than an average surfboard. They're, they've got very straight rails. But they hold the width a long way back. And they forward. hold the, the width forwards and backwards, yeah. yeah. Sort of the idea would be to keep that really straight rail line and have a lot of rail engaged in the water without much swing weight on the nose, right? That's kind of the idea is, yeah, to, to, to still end up um, because you've got on a normal surfboard, you've got a lot of curved outline. Mm-hmm. So actually, you never get that much of the total rail engaged in the wave face. Whereas with these boards, although they're a lot shorter, you're getting the whole rail every turn. You're getting a similar amount of rail engaged. And then you're not getting the swing weight of, you know, six foot of surfboard. Red Bull put out a film where. Uh, Jamie O'Brien and Julian Wilson, a few other people were surfing. Yeah, the Red Bull Decades. Yeah, and they were surfing one, I think, out in Tahiti or somewhere like that. Yeah. And uh, looking at that film, for me personally, without having ridden the board, I don't think I would like to surf one. It looked to me like the board was skatey and you would struggle to hold the rail in the water for a long time when you're doing a turn Mm -hmm. and also with the width in the nose i feel like if you were doing turns off the top of the wave you would catch your nose a lot in the water having said that when you look at the footage of kelly slater surfing one which is kicking around vimeo somewhere Mm -hmm. he makes it look really really good yeah well but uh, i think you know he makes he makes almost every board look good so i feel like that's not a very good way of seeing whether it's a good board or not you know what i mean yeah So just as a, a final sign-off before we say goodbye, we thought we'd we'd run down a few little movies and things that have come out in the last couple of weeks. And we're going to put all of these again at surfsimply.com slash podcast. You can have a look at all of these. Yeah, this is our little what to watch section, which is, yeah. as Harry says, we'll have on the website. But also on our page, uh, facebook.com slash surfing, we kind of post the movies that we like up there every day. So you can yeah. catch most of this stuff up there too. Most important of all of them, Point Break. Point Break. Really so looking forward to it. Just before we started recording, I watched the, the trailer for Point Break 2. Is it called Point Break 2 or just called Point Break? I think it's called Point Break. And it does look a lot of fun. I mean... It, it looks ridiculous. It looks yeah, ridiculously I'm definitely, fun. I'm definitely going to have to watch it. Oh. But it's like, I think that they're really, they really desperately want to crowbar more cheesy quotes that can be put in than, than the original Point Break, which is one of the most quotable movies ever. Yeah. There's that one bit in the trailer when he goes... Bodie, do you know how many laws you've broken? And then do you know the what? only law that matters is gravity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Red Bull have stepped it up, and they've they've dropped a couple of movies on us. The yeah, and Dino's signature movie, his uh, brother. New what youth movie? Have you seen it on Red Bull TV? Yeah, it's amazing. It's pretty good. Although I would say the end section has some of the best surfing in. I'm yeah. not sure that Luke Davis doesn't do a little bit better. Like, he can he can ride the tube, can he? Yeah, that, like probably the best wave in the video is that 
Greenbush section. Yeah, that Portugal uh, barrel to alley-oop is pretty amazing. It is pretty cool. And they also dropped the um, Ultimate Waterman, the, the documentary about that event we were talking yeah. about a couple of months ago. Um, That's kind of interesting, actually. I thought it was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, on Surfer Magazine just dropped a movie uh, called The Fjord. Yeah, where, which is that's Norway? Uh, it's is it Iceland. In, it's kind of in between Norway and Iceland in uh, the Faroe oh, Islands. The Faroe real Islands. small yeah. islands. Your friend Justin's in that, right? Yeah, my friend Justin Quintal has a really big party. Does some pretty impressive longboarding in it. And I, uh, I actually talked with them a little bit recently about that trip, and they, I don't think they really got that good of waves. I think it was more of a cultural trip than a than a surf trip. The myth of the surf movie. I must say, I, I always love those movies that are coming out of Iceland and, and kind of the, just the edge of the Arctic Circle because they have these amazing backdrops. That is and so pretty. Yeah. They're just so, like, cinematically, they're, they, they're so beautiful. It doesn't make me want to go there. Don't get me wrong. Have you guys seen Chris Burkhart's TED Talk? No, no. I, uh, I, I tried to watch it the other day, but it didn't load on Vimeo. Ah. Um, yeah, he's the guy that, that, did he film the field? Or is he uh, one of the photographers? He, he's um, he's a photographer for Surfer Magazine, but he only does the cold water stuff. All the stuff you see coming out of Iceland, Norway. Yeah, it's usually uh, that's, that's quite a hardcore niche to have carved out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's quite cool because this TED Talk is saying, I worked out, like, I didn't like the cold, but I worked out that was going to be my niche. And I just got to the point where I was comfortable with it. I'm looking forward to seeing J-O-B 5.0. Because oh, the number new one, Jamie O'Brien series. Yeah, because I love the stuff Jamie O'Brien does. I think he's got a great attitude, as I've said on the show before. Big fan of Jamie O'Brien. From a distance. From a distance. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure how well we'd get on sat down in a room together. No, he seems like a cool guy. I like. I love the way he doesn't take it, everything seriously, and I love the way that he just charges. And I love that the subsquatches. I really wanted us to get one. To... The first episode of, of the new series of J.O.B. is is all subsquatch stuff. Oh, brilliant. So it's if you don't know hilarious. what subsquatch is, listeners... It's a sort of a, a comedic <laughs> stand-up paddleboard, an inflatable stand-up paddleboard. You can probably have, I would say, uh, like maybe eight or ten people standing like on it. Almost a dozen of your best friends. Yeah. They took it out at Waimea and they took it out at Pipe. And uh, oh, there's some really funny footage going around the, uh, the interwebs. But uh, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. Speaking of how many people you can fit on a surfboard, did you see, guys see what they're going to be uh, doing at Huntington, uh, Huntington Beach? Beach? Yeah, yeah that's the cool, US isn't Open. it? I think that'd be quite fun. Yeah, it'd be pretty fun to be on the board. Yeah. They're, they're fitting it with a trace. Oh, are they? Yeah. <laughs> that's the most pointless use of a trace ever. So they're, they're, I looked at the... So what they're doing, listeners, is during the US Open, they're going to try and break these records for like the biggest surfboard and the most amount of people to ride a wave on one surfboard. Yeah. And uh, the surf... I, was just, I just looked it up and it, the surfboard is uh, 42 and a quarter inches long. I like yeah. that they just specified that it was a quarter and it's 11... Sorry, not inches, feet. And it's 11.1 feet wide. Yeah. That extra one foot, presumably just to help with uh, the planing area as you come mm-hmm. into your turns. The other thing I don't get is they seem to have shaped it off a shortboard template, which seems a really weird template to have used if you're going just for maximum size and number of people. Like, surely you go, like, full round nose. Uh, but if you're going for match- maximum visual impact and comedy value, then it's probably quite a good choice. <laughs> probably, yeah. Good board. Yeah. I wonder what the spray job's going to be. Well, flames. I would hope it's going to be flames. Neon flames. Neon flames. Neon flames. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies and gents. So I think that's about all we've got time for uh, this episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please let us know. Uh, We will try and do the emails on a little bit more of a regular basis in the future. But for now, from uh, all of us, goodbye. Bye. Later. Bodie, do you have any idea how many people you've killed? How many laws you've broken? (laughs) The only law that matters is gravity. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.